I didn't inadvertently run that out of the way, so sorry about that. <laughs> I'll look at the bulletin next time. So well done. Very, very good. Thank you. Thank you all for that. Well, you can open up to Luke 2. That's where we're going to be, Luke 2 this morning. I don't know if you ever noticed in the Bible before, but there's, throughout Scripture, there's this fascinating division between heaven and earth. Heaven is of course, includes the sky above, but heaven is, is spoken of throughout Scripture as the place where God dwells and where he dwells with the angels, the spiritual beings. And earth, of course, is below. Heaven is above, earth is below, and earth is where men dwell. It's the realm of men in many ways. And you can see this split, this uh, division between heaven and earth in the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. Um, I went back and looked at that, and really the whole account portrays this, uh, this division between the heavens above and the earth below. Of course, on day one, God creates light and darkness, but then on day two, he splits the sky above from the earth below. There's a, the waters above and the waters below, and then on day three, he actually creates dry land below, and then the sun, moon, and stars fill the sky, and the, the animals and man dwell below, and there's plants and everything. And so there's this division between the skies above and the heavens above and the earth below. And then throughout the rest of the Old Testament, this division continues, and you see that the heavens are where God dwells with spiritual beings, and earth is where, where mankind dwells. And then you get to the New Testament, and you may not have picked up on this, but there are several significant passages that specifically point to heaven and earth. In Luke 10, 21, God is called the Lord of heaven and earth. In the Sermon on the Mount, in the Lord's Prayer, which I'm sure you have recited or said before, the first request is that God's will would be done on earth as well as in heaven, two separate realms and the prayer is that God's will would be done in both. And then, at the end of Matthew, in the Great Commission, what does Jesus say? He says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth, both of those realms there. And at the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 21, you actually see beautifully both of these areas, both of these realms coming together, where God dwelling in heaven, brings heaven down with him to earth and begins to dwell with man. And that's the culmination of the entire biblical story is this union presented as a marriage between these two realms of, of heaven and earth. And of course, that coming together is pictured and is demonstrated in the incarnation of our Lord, where heaven comes down to dwell on earth. And all of that is made possible. That, that culmination in Revelation 21 because of the incarnation, because God came down to dwell with men in the birth of our Lord and through his life and through his death and through his resurrection. All of that is made possible. And so that's why at the incarnation you have reactions, results in both heaven and earth because there are implications in both of these realms of the Lord Jesus coming coming to earth, of heaven coming down to dwell among us. And so that's what we're going to look at today, 
in, in Luke chapter 2 and verse 14. This is our third song of Advent, and we have one more to look at next week, and then it'll be Christmas, which is just amazing. Someone said to me this week, it's two weeks from Christmas Day, and I, you know, my neck spun around. That I was like, what? I can't believe it's coming up that quickly. I had to do a double take. Um, so it's, it's almost here. Uh, I hope your shopping is done. But we have one more song of Advent, and then it'll be Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. But Luke chapter 2 and verse 14 is where we'll be this morning. We're going to see a song of glory and peace in Luke 2.14. And in this, in this one single verse, we're going to see two results of Christ's birth that bring great joy. Both of these bring great joy, but they're results that happen to different individuals and to the two different realms of heaven and earth. And you can see the first result there in the first part of verse 14. In heaven, there will be glory, glory to God in heaven. So let's look at this in chapter 2. Let's start in verse 13 and sort of get our bearings here. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. And so, as we read this morning, you find this vast number, probably innumerable amount of angels who are here, this multitude, and they fill up the night sky over these shepherds, and they are praising God. Well, what's the event that brought this about? You know the answer to this, but just to make sure, let's go back to chapter 2, verse 7, read through verse 9. And she gave birth, Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And so the occasion for this song, what brought this song of praise to the Lord about What made this happen is the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ to Mary in a stable in Bethlehem. And of course, the whole book of Luke, if you've read the first few chapters, has led up to this point. We have all of these announcements of these children who are going to be born and these expectations of what's going to happen through them. We've looked at two songs so far in our series. We've looked at the song uh, that Mary sung and the song that Zechariah gave there, and both of them have proclaimed this event. And both of them have presented this event that's happening on this night as the climax of the story of the Old Testament. This is not an individual event with no context. Everything has led up to this. Everything has pointed to this. And so in this night, God is doing what he promised to do. And he's doing what he promised to do according to Zechariah. He is visiting his people and he's going to redeem his people through this child. But here in this poem, in this song here in verse 14, you have the angels declaring and telling these shepherds that this birth of this baby in this obscure place is going to have an impact in heaven, in the realm above. Now, you may be thinking, okay, I don't see the word heaven in verse 14. All it says at the first part of this is glory to God in the highest. And that's true. You don't see the word heaven here. But it all has to do with that word highest. 
And a lot of times people may think that when the angels proclaim glory to God in the highest, what they're saying is we are maxing out our praise to God. It is the highest praise that we can give, the most fervent and joyful praise. But that's not what they're proclaiming here. This word highest is talking about a realm. It's talking about the highest heaven. And what it's talking about is that there will be glory to God in heaven, in his residence, in his abode. And they're proclaiming that glory will come to God because of of the birth of this child, because of the incarnation. Now, glory is is a word that is a very biblical word, a very churchy word. It's a word that that you hear probably regularly um, from this pulpit and in songs and certainly in Christmas songs. And this word glory can mean a couple of things in Scripture, and both of those tie together, I think, as you'll see. If you look back up to the the verse we just read a moment ago, verse 9, you see this word glory there. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And so you can see that in, in one instance, God's glory, the glory of the Lord, is this light, this Shekinah glory that shines forth. And here it happens to be particularly bright because it's coming in the middle of a pitch black dark night on a hillside. And so God's glory, many times in Scripture, speaks of this bright, this shining out display of who he is. It's sort of like humans see this bright shining and uh, it shines out from God and displays who he is. Now, in the Old Testament, this word for glory, the Hebrew word for glory, can also speak, it can speak of this, of this Shekinah glory shining out, but it can also be translated as, as heavy. Um, there's, there's actually a passage in Samuel uh, where Eli is a, and it's the word heavy, it's the word glory. He's a, the Hebrew word is kavod. He's a, he's a fat man. He's a heavy man. And it's actually the same word in Hebrew that is used to describe Eli. And he's so heavy that he falls back and, uh, off of his stool there. Um, and ends up dying because of that when he receives a bad announcement. But, but ironically, or interestingly enough, that's actually the word that is used to describe God. He is heavy. He is weighty. And what we take away from that is that he is the most significant person in the universe. He's the most weighty individual. His character carries with it this significance and this importance and this weight to it that you and I cannot escape. And all of that has to do with his character, with who he is. And so any way you slice it, when you see this word glory, God's glory means the shining out or the going public or the display of his character, of who he is. It's the display of the weightiness of all that makes God up, his justice, his holiness, his righteousness, it's his love, his mercy, all of that being put on display and going public and going forth. And so here to glorify God, when the angels say that there is going to come to God glory because of the incarnation, what they're saying is that God's worth, their worth will be ascribed to him because of the importance of who he is. And so really what they're saying is the incarnation is going to put on display, glorify God, it's going to put on display or shine out 
his character for all to see. Through the incarnation, everyone will be able to see who God truly is. And so it will cause even those in heaven, those around the throne of God, it will cause even them to worship him and to honor him and to praise him for his justice and for his love and his mercy and his grace and his righteousness. They will see what he has done in the incarnation, in the coming of this child, and they will glorify him. They will say, look at his character. Look how magnificent he is because of his acts, because of what he's done. I think you can see this sort of heavenly reaction a couple of other times in the New Testament. One is in 1 Peter chapter 1, and uh, here's what Peter writes about salvation. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, so this is talking about the Old Testament prophets looking ahead and wondering about the coming Messiah. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then this is the reason I read this passage, this last little section here, things into which angels long to look. I always love that. There's like this curiosity about what has happened in, redeem, in the redemption of human beings through the incarnation, through the suffering of Christ and his glory. The heavenly beings look at that and are curious and they want to know more about it and they, they're fascinated by it. And I think ultimately they bring glory to God because of what they see him doing in, in the birth of Christ and in his death and his resurrection. I also think you see this in the heavenly throne room itself. In Revelation chapter 4 and 5, you see a vision that John has of the heavenly throne room. And there's a couple of different reasons given in this, these chapters for why God is glorified in heaven, why the heavenly beings are praising him. At the end of chapter 4, you see him praised for his role in creation. I mean, he's the one that made everything. And so we should honor him for that. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. If for no other reason, we ought to glorify, ascribe worth, magnify God's character because he made everything. Obviously, that's significant. But beyond that, when you get into chapter 5, now the attention in heaven shifts from creation to redemption. And after this whole scene where John is expecting a lion from the tribe of Judah to come, and he turns and sees a lamb that was slain, taking the scroll out of the Father's hand, which is all authority in heaven and earth, the title deed to the world, authority over the world, the heavenly beings sing now a new song. It's not just a song about God's glory in creation. Now they glorify and praise and honor God for his role in redemption. They sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. 
And so the hosts of heaven are singing a new song to God and to the Lamb because of the work of the Lamb in redeeming God's lost and broken creation. Then verses 11 and 12 continue this. More and more people, or more and more heavenly beings, I should say, join in the song. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. But it's not everyone praising him yet. And there's one more level of praise that comes in this passage to the Lamb and to God. Verse 13, and I heard every creature, right? It's like a concentric circle. It goes from those right around the throne out to the thousands of angels. And now John looks and it's everybody, everywhere, every voice, every creature in heaven and on earth, which is interesting, and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Every available voice erupts in praise to God for the work of redemption. And this work of redemption only happens because the second person of the Trinity became man. Because of this birth that we're reading about here in Luke chapter 2. And so this is why we find the angels here doing what they do. They are ascribing worth to God. They are lifting up his name. They are magnifying his name and glorifying him. They are saying God's character is worthy of honor and glory. And the incarnation will even further put that on display and magnify his name. And so this is the first result that we see here. It's glory in heaven and glory specifically given to God. But the second result here is in a different realm. This is in the second part of verse 14, and it's peace on earth. Peace specifically to, to men. Verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the major result for mankind because of the incarnation, peace. So last week, I told you we would talk about this because at the end of Zechariah's song, this is the, the end goal of the sunrise. Remember this? Look back at verse 79. Verse, actually, let's do 78 and 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And so Zechariah expects the coming Messiah to lead us in the pathway of peace, to lead us to peace. And so here the angels are praising God and they're saying, this is the result of this birth. This is what's going to happen for mankind on earth. There will be peace that will come through this child. So What does this mean? How are we to understand this proclamation of of peace? Well, this proclamation of peace comes to us here in a particular context. And I think it's really important for you to understand the context in which peace would have been proclaimed to help us to grasp what we're talking about here when 
when the angels say peace is going to come to the earth and mankind because of this child. So I want you to look back up at verse 1, and I want you to take note of the man who is mentioned in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. So if you're not familiar with the Roman Empire and with, with the history of Rome, Caesar Augustus was maybe most likely the most significant emperor in Roman history, in the whole empire. He was the first one, the very first one. And he was the first one to take on this title of Augustus. And this title of Augustus means holy or revered one. It was believed at this time that this individual, this Roman Empire, the first one, Caesar Augustus, was divine, that he was the son of a god, that he was the son of Apollo, one of the ancient, ancient gods of antiquity. Caesar Augustus, his other name maybe you've heard is Octavian, but Caesar Augustus had been reigning as emperor since 27 BC, right? So he's been on the throne here for a little over 20 years, reigning as emperor. And you have to understand that when it comes to the Roman Empire, before Octavian, before Caesar Augustus took control and took authority, things were a mess. There was constant civil war. There was constant turmoil. In fact, at the beginning of of his reign, or before his reign, for about 10 years, he fought a civil war to try to gain authority and to try to gain control over the empire. There were warlords that were constantly fighting and battling to gain power. They wanted control of the Mediterranean Sea and all the land around it. And so there was such turmoil during this time that people actually longed for peace. That's what they wanted. And so when Augustus took control of the empire in 27 BC, his methods were ruthless, but he actually did usher in a golden age of peace in many ways for for Rome. I'm sure many of you have heard of the Pax Romana. It's this time period of a couple hundred years almost in Roman history called the time of peace. And this is the time in which Christ is born. And that time period, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, began with Caesar Augustus, with Octavian coming to power and authority. His accomplishments were considered by many as so great that there were a couple of inscriptions that we still have that describe his his reign to us. One in 9 BC, so just a few years before Christ was born, said this, that his birthday... It was setting aside his birthday as a day of rejoicing and as a holiday in the Roman Empire because it said his birthday signaled, listen to this, the beginning of euangelion. That word is the word good news. That's the word gospel. It said that his birthday signaled the beginning of good news, euangelion, for the world just a few years before Christ is born. Another inscription expounds on that euangelion, that good news, and it proclaims the peace and prosperity that were brought about by Augustus. Here's what it says. Augustus is the father of his divine homeland Rome, inherited from his father Zeus, and a savior of the common folk. 
His foresight not only fulfilled the entreaties of all people, but surpassed them, making peace for land and sea, while cities bloom with order, harmony, and good seasons. The productivity of all things is good and at its prime. There are fond hopes for the future and good will during the present, which fills all men, so that they ought to bear pleasing sacrifices and hymns. Now, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And there's no doubt that people long for peace and for good order and harmony and prosperity. And that's what they wanted. And Roman propaganda, these inscriptions would have us believe and have the people believe that that sort of flourishing and well-being was achieved through Octavian and through the reign of Caesar Augustus. But in God's purposes, what's so amazing about this is that while this arrogant Roman ruler was sitting on his throne and had been reigning and proclaiming peace and euangelion to all people through his reign, he had no idea that through his decree that the world would be taxed and a census would be done so that he could reap revenue and he could be seen as this glorious ruler. He had no idea that through that, God was using those circumstances to fulfill his plan and bring true peace and shalom to the world. And this peace would not come through the marble buildings, the governmental halls in Rome. This peace would come through a stable in a backward town in the Judean countryside. And I want you to notice what the angels tell the shepherds in verse 10. Look at this. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you euangelion. So it's a direct affront to Caesar Augustus. This is not the guy who this comes through. It's not going to come through any earthly ruler. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Why? For, verse 11, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is good news for all people. This is the same word that is used in that inscription regarding Augustus. And this good news, the reason that there's great joy is because this is the proclamation of peace and harmony and well-being, and it will be brought about through someone who is Look at the description at the end of verse 11. A savior, a deliverer, who is Messiah and then the Lord. He is the Lord, an indication that he will be the divine God-man. And so there's the proclamation of peace here, and you have this whole background of Augustus and what the Roman Empire thought peace should look like. But what are the angels really talking about here in verse verse 14? And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The peace that would come through Messiah. Well, I want to read you an extended quote here because there's no way I can say this any better. Um, And uh, this is a, a description of what the Hebrew prophets expected the reign of Messiah to look like. I'm not going to put it on the screen, so you're just going to have to listen here. Here's what they thought this golden messianic age would look like. And this is what they, they expected, and this is what we have to look forward to in the future. They dreamed of a new age 
in which human crookedness would straighten out. The foolish would be made wise, and the wise made humble. They dreamed of a time when the deserts would bloom, the mountains would run with wine, people would stop weeping and be able to sleep without a weapon under their pillow. I can almost never read this without tearing up, so I'm sorry. People would work in peace and work to fruitful effect. A lamb could lie down with a wolf because the wolf had lost its appetite. All nature would be fruit. All nature would be fruitful, benign, and filled with wonder upon wonder. All humans would be knit together in brotherhood and sisterhood, and all nature and all humans would look to God, lean toward God, and delight in God. Shouts of joy and recognition would well up from women in streets and from men at sea. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. In English, we call it peace. But it means far more than just peace of mind or ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as the creator and savior opens doors and speaks welcome to the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things are supposed to be. And I think you know this longing in your heart for this sort of golden age and this time of peace. I mean, you and I get up every day and we know that things are amiss. Things are not as they should be, right? I mean, you watch the news, which just don't do it, but you watch the news and you, you see people exploited. You see people who are poor. They don't have what they need. There are natural disasters, pandemics. They ruin lives, ruin fortunes. You see people hate each other, lie to one another. You see families torn apart, your children who are hungry. And you think, when you see all that, it's not supposed to be like this. And that's just what's happening outside. We experience sin in our own hearts. We have anger, lust. We worship material goods more than we worship God. We fight with those we love. Our bodies break down. Our minds forget what they should know. And that happens and we think it's not supposed to be this way. And we're right. It's not supposed to be like this. And this is precisely why the angels proclaim good news. <laughs> because it is good news. And this is why it's so refreshing to think about the joy and the peace that comes through this child. This child will bring shalom. And he will bring peace through his life and work. The out-of-joint shoulder that is the world, that is annoying and painful and dysfunctional, it will be set right, and the crooked path will be made straight. And that's true, but I want you to notice something at the end of verse 14. 
And it says, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And you're probably used to, like I am, used to hearing this say peace, goodwill toward men. But that's not getting at the meaning that is conveyed here. That's not what the angels are proclaiming. I think this translation in the ESV is closer than peace, goodwill toward men. And I actually think the NIV does a really good job here. It says peace to those on whom his favor rests. And so this is a, this is a hard truth, but it's, it's truth, it's reality. God's peace, this child is born to bring joy to all people. Verse 10 tells us that. But not all people will participate in this shalom. Not all people will receive this blessing that has been promised here. And this setting right of things that have been wrong only comes to those with whom he is pleased, with those on whom his favor rests. And so if you're a Jew and you're hearing this in the first century, what you're hearing is that God's favor rests on his special elect people, his chosen people people. And of course, during this time, that would have been Israel. That's who they would have thought of. But now what's amazing, and as we'll look at more next week, is this, these promises, this expectation of shalom comes not just to the nation of Israel, but through this child, it gets expanded out to every people group, every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. The promise of his favor no longer just rests on the nation of Israel. Now it extends to the end of the earth. But it only comes to those who embrace him as the Savior who is Christ the Lord. They rightly recognize his authority and his position as the deliverer and as the king. And so to enter this peace, to one day enter this shalom to experience things as they should be, then you have to turn from your sin and you have to turn to him as Lord and Master. And so to reject him and to reject the light that has come into the world puts you on the outside of this. John, I think, puts this pretty clearly in John 1. The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this is the dividing line. It's those who have received him, who have been given the right by his will to become children of God, who have repented of their sins, who've turned from their sins, from the brokenness of the world and said, I need a substitute. I need a savior. I need someone who will set things right in my life and in the whole world. And so that's my question for you this morning. Have you believed, as it says here, in his name? Have you acknowledged his position as Christ the Lord, his authority over you? Or are you still clinging to the hope of peace and of shalom through something else? Some earthly person or something, financial resources, good health, whatever it may be. Have you found your own personal Caesar Augustus, 
that you think is going to get you through life and make things okay and set things right? Or are you looking to this child who is Christ the Lord? He's the only one that can do this, and he came to redeem and to bring glory to God and peace on earth to those with whom he is pleased. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for for this song this morning. You truly are deserving of glory. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for what you've done. And we're thankful for the peace that will come to this earth. And we anticipate that and we long for that. And we pray that you would shape us and mold us in light of that coming shalom and that coming peace. Help us to be people of the good news. We have a joyous message to proclaim. Change us by that message and help us to be people who are ready to share that with others because we live in a world that desperately needs that good news. So we thank you for our time together. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.